Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers in the Old Testament. It's also printed on the back of your bulletin if you don't have a Bible with you this morning. And today I'd like to just address the title of my message, Look and Be Ye Saved. It's an old English way of saying that. But in this passage of Scripture, we're going to see that that is the case. That believing does have some substance to it. And we see it even here in the Old Testament. Israel's journey from Sinai to the plains of Moab is a lesson concerning sin and it's a lesson concerning grace, God's grace. It is a story of repeated sin resulting, of course, in failure. Until Jehovah comes along and extends His grace. And He does it in a particular way that we'll see this morning in this passage. But if you notice in chapter 21, in verses 1 through 3, let's read that, follow along with me as I read that. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Artharium, Then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. The Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered the Canaanites. Then they utterly destroyed them and their their cities. Thus the name of the place was called Hormah. And Hormah simply means destruction. Now, in those passages, all you see there is the people are wandering in their desert. They're heading for the promised land. And, of course, they run into trouble with the Canaanites. They pray, Lord, if you deliver this people into our hands, then we will destroy them like we were supposed to in the first place. And the Lord does. And so he answers their prayer. But they still don't see what God is doing. So this morning, there are three things that sinners must see before they can look and be saved. Here's the first one. Until you see your condition, you will not look and be saved. Until you see your condition, you will not look and be ye saved. Well, look at verse 4. And five of Numbers chapter 21. It says, Then they set out for Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. And verse five, the people spoke against God and against Moses. Let me just stop there at that point. See, here we have. The people have come through the wilderness, and they simply ask the question, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, where there is no food, nor water, and we loathe this miserable food, it tells us here in this passage of Scripture. Now, so what do they start doing? Once they see that God is not bringing them directly to the promised land, 
actually they are going many times in the other direction. Wait, wait a minute, Lord, the promised land is over here. Why are you taking us over there? Well, the Lord often does that, doesn't he? All right, now if you notice what happens, when the Lord did that, they became impatient because of the journey in verse number 4. They were finding themselves so near to the promised land, yet they were not entering it. Also, the route that they were taking was through the worst parts of the sandy, harsh desert. And of course, that presented many unknown difficulties. And all this produced in the people impatience. Now, if you see that when they respond to God, they respond really in two ways. In verse uh, 4 and 5, they respond with a question. And they also they respond with a statement. In verse 5, the question is, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Now, in saying that, what they're doing is saying, indirectly, God, you don't really know what you're doing. You brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. So they make an accusation against what God was doing. And that accusation came out of an impatience in their heart. A restlessness in their heart. Let's get the program finished. Secondly, in verse number 5, they respond with a statement. And notice what they say in their statement. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable bread. Now, the statement, of course, is not a statement of fact. It is a statement that is born out of a disgust with God. Actually, the word for no food means no bread. It's not that they didn't have food. So they were, in a sense, saying, God, somehow you're not treating us right here. And somehow they actually lie about what he has actually done with the people. It's not that they did not have food. It wasn't the food that they were greedy for. You're giving me bread and I want quail. You're giving me bread and I want filet You're giving me quail and I want something other than what you're... You're giving me bread or bread manna from heaven and I want something other than manna from heaven. In fact... Take your Bibles and turn to just chapter 11 of Numbers, because this has not been a new thing. What we see in this chapter, 21, is an escalation of their attitude toward God. But look at verse number 4 through 9. We get a sense of the complaining heart of the people. And notice what it says in verse 4. It says, the rabble who were, um, this is Numbers 11, 4, the rabble who were among them, had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and says, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic, but now our appetite is gone, and there is nothing at all to look at except this manna. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and you get the point. 
See, the people were just thinking about what they used to eat in Egypt, and it was unlike the manna that God regularly gave to them. So see, their grumbling and murmuring was surface sins. And their heart sin, you know what their heart sin was? Unbelief. They didn't believe God's word. They didn't believe that God would take them into the desert to actually, he was going to actually meet all their needs and finally at the end bring them to the promised land. But this grumbling, murmuring people had some lessons to learn. And if anybody can teach lessons, God can. Because you know one thing about God's lessons? You can't get out of them. You have to go through them. Right? There's no a roundabout way. You can't climb over the fence. You've got to go through them. And God is great at that. And so he's going to do that with these people. So the Lord God was very displeased with them. Their accusations were not true. God is the great provider. He meets their needs. He faithfully actually provides them with food and water. And the Bible even tells us that God even made their shoes especially durable. And they didn't even wear out. God had also shown his love by providing a way of acceptance by faith. Not too long before this, evidence through the blood sacrifice. But instead of thanking the Lord, they accused him of neglect. And they ignored God's law, telling lies and dishonoring his name. And so that's where the people were at this particular point. See, they, until they saw their condition they could never look and be saved. They had to see how they looked to God. And this is how they looked to God. And how did they look? Miserable. This was a miserable, complaining people. Now you say, well, I'm not like that. Brethren, this is you. This is me. We are a miserable lot of people. Are we not? See, because that is our condition. And until we see that, how we respond to God in our grumbling, in our tents, our houses, and our complaining underneath our breath about how we have been dealt a bad deal here, the short end of the stick, you know, it goes on and on and on and on, right? And yet, The counterpart to this passage of Scripture is found in the New Testament. Keep your hand there in Numbers and turn for a minute to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 through 11, because the things that happened to Israel happened to them so we today, presently in the church, could learn a lesson. And the lesson would be, don't be like them. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 5 through 11. Because he gives a warning here, Paul does, for present-day Christians. Not to mimic their attitudes or their sins. It says in verse 5, nevertheless, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. He's talking about the people in the wilderness. For they laid low in the wilderness. Verse 6, now these things happen as examples for us. 
so that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Verse 8, nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 24,000 fell in one day. And verse 9, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And then verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Brethren, this passage of scripture is for you and I today in numbers. Because he's saying there, don't be like them. Don't mimic them. Why? You have all the tendencies to be just like them. Turn back to Numbers chapter 21 in your Bibles. Because what the people have actually done at this point, Moses had already received the law. He already taught the people the law. They had broken the law of God. How have they broken the law of God? Well, they took the Lord's name in vain, accusing God of ignoring them, neglecting them. They bore false witness against the Lord, saying God isn't feeding them, but he was feeding them, but not what they wanted to be fed with. And then also they were coveting. They were coveting what they had in the past in the world. And Egypt is a picture of the world. They wanted their past circumstance and situation but what was it slavery they were in bondage for 400 years see that's what they wanted really they wanted to be enslaved again when god was trying to deliver them and bring them out of slavery see that is the power of sin that is the deceptiveness of sin it even convinces us that this is a great way to live and all your desires and pleasures are filled when you live according to them, and have your needs met according to your whims and your desires. But brethren, until you see your condition, you will not be saved. See, breaking God's law has consequences. Just as trying to defy the law of gravity, you're not going to get away with a, without a fractured bone or even death. The violation of God's law, lying, grumbling, brought certain consequences, and they had to learn what those consequences were. That's why right here in verse 6 of Numbers 21, look at it. If you, again, don't have your Bible on the back of the bulletin, it, notice the ramifications for violating God's law. And brings me to my second point, that until you see the judgment your sins against God brings you will not look and be ye saved. What it says in verse number 6, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. Stop there in the middle of the verse. So this is what God does. Because of their sin, He sends fiery serpents. Now, this means poisonous snakes. And the desert area of the Middle East there were well known for several types of poisonous vipers. One of them was a horned viper, and another one was a carpet viper, being the most dreaded of all. The term fiery here in this passage of Scripture, the word describes the reddish color that the carpet viper 
or the severe burning sensation that was caused by the venom when it went into the body. So this is the situation. The people did not see their condition yet. And because they didn't see their condition, God brought judgment upon them. And this judgment was God would send snakes among them, venomous snakes, and the snakes would bite them. But notice in verse number 6, who sent these, again, I just want to stress this. It says, the Lord sent them. The Lord sent these serpents among the people. Some may say, such drastic measures? Such drastic measures the Lord would take and bring these people under such consequences just for grumbling a little bit? just for complaining a little bit, just for musing that the good old days were gone? Yes. Why? Because they have not seen their condition. They have not seen themselves the way God sees them. That's why. And God will take great measures to bring people to the place where they turn around and they look at themselves how God sees them. And until they see the judgment that their sin brings against, of course, because they have lived this way and their sins are against God, because God sin is breaking God's law, they cannot be saved. There's a third thing, though, I want you to see in verse number 6, the second part of that verse. Until... Your inability to save yourself from the dreadful condition of God's judgment is seen that you cannot look and be saved. It says, verse 6, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that, notice, many people of Israel, what? Died. Now, brethren, from the very first book of the Bible... God has said that sin would lead to death. Everywhere in Scripture, that everyone who violates God's law, and everyone is a sinner, everyone violates God's law, it leads to death, physical death. That's the separation of man's spirit from the body. But it also leads to spiritual death or relational death. Separation of man's spirit from God. We're born into this world with our spirit separated from God. And also it would lead, if people stay in that condition, to the third kind of death the Bible talks about, eternal death, and that's separation of man's spirit from God forever. We call that, of course, the lake of fire, where everyone would be cast that have not seen their condition, nor have seen how their sins against God brings judgment, nor have they seen their inability to save themselves from their condition and from the judgment of God. See, until you see those things, you cannot be saved. Now that brings me to verse 7 through 9 in the book of Numbers. And my 
fourth and last point. That until you see these things, you will not look to the remedy that brings restoration and be ye saved. And so looking has three ingredients, but it's really one package. And it's amazing as you look at this passage of Scripture, it's the same thing when you come to the New Testament. Look at verse number 7, that looking to the remedy includes... First thing, in verse number 7, notice. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord. And you intercede with the Lord that, we may re- that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. What is he talking about there? He's, the purpose of God's judgment, the purpose of God bringing fiery serpents among the people is really to change their mind. It's to change their desire, to turn from their desire for Egypt, their desire for their old sins, their desire for bondage, and give them a new desire for what God wanted for them, deliverance. So see, until... until you're brought to that point. And to, until people are brought to that point, until sinners are brought to that point, they will stay right there. Right where they're at. But see, God has a way of getting to us. He has a way of getting His message across. And what we have in verse number 7 is the people are getting the message. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. And they knew exactly what they did. They sinned against the Lord and against God's physical representative on earth, Moses. Because what Moses spoke is what God wanted him to speak. Moses wasn't speaking his own words. He was speaking what God told him to say. And so repentance, turning to God, is the first part of the package, the ingredient in the package, which allows us to look to God's remedy, to look to the restoration that God gives us so we may be saved. See, heartfelt repentance is really heartfelt sorrow for sin. It's a renouncing of it. It's a a sincere commitment to forsake it, to walk in obedience to to God. And this does not mean, which many people think sometimes, that you have to clean up your life first before coming and receiving God's remedy. These people were bitten by the snakes. They were dying. They couldn't clean up, clean up their life. There couldn't, there's nothing they could do to save themselves except call out to God. God, we've sinned against you. We see our condition. And now we're looking to the remedy. See, that's the only way salvation will come. You cannot save yourself. You could never save yourself. So when we turn to God for salvation from sins, we are simultaneously turning away from the sins we are asking God to save us from. And of course, the sin here, the underlying sin is unbelief. I just don't believe God. I just don't think God has it right. I just don't think there's just one way to salvation today. 
It just doesn't seem like it fits with anything. Well, there's a second thing in this package in verse number 7, and it's this. We need someone to intercede for us. In verse 7, they asked Moses to intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. They now know the only remedy to the removal of the snakes that bit the people for their sin is God alone. But they knew they could not approach God alone. They needed an intercessor. And Moses being a type of Christ is now the intercessor. He's going to go before God, and he's going to pray to God for the people. That's what he's going to do. See, the Israelites recognize that they have sinned, so that they ask God through Moses to deliver them. Now, that meant something that comes into the package right here. That means they needed to trust God. It doesn't mean you have all the answers to everything. It means you have to trust God to deliver you. Now, what is so odd about this passage of Scripture? That God was going to give the children of Israel a chance to express their faith in Him and take His word, follow His direction, and His guidance. You know what that meant? that the next part of the package is simply this, faith. I have to believe God, period. Now, what were they believing God for? And here, here, here comes the, the strangest thing of all, and this is where we all have a problem. This is where all the intellectuals have a problem. This, this is where all thinking people have a problem. Look at verse number 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, a pole. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, will live. Let me just stop there. Here's God's remedy. Moses was directed to make a figure of a serpent in bronze and elevate it on a pole or a standard so it can be seen in the whole camp, to the extremities of the camp, and that everyone who was bitten in the nation of Israel would be able to lift their eyes and look and be healed, right? Brethren, if that is not a picture of faith, nothing is. What could they do? Could they work? Could they get up and say, let me, let me see if I can live a better life? No, they did have to do something. They had to look. See, the scenario, here's the scenario of unbelief, though. Here's a guy laying on the ground, bitten by a snake, dying. Here's the scenario of unbelief, and this is what happens all the time. Uh, It goes something like this. You know this Moses, I think he's a little, uh, several bricks short of a load. I I, I think that his elevator doesn't go to the top floor. In in other words, this old-timer, Moses is probably about 80-some years old now. I I think he's a little senile. I think he's a little crazy. Uh, it's bizarre to put a snake on a pole and lift it up and you'll be healed from a venomous bite. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. It goes against all conventional wisdom. It goes against all the known 
medical practices of Egypt, which was on the cutting edge of technology. And some of the things they did in Egypt, we can't even mimic today when it comes to mathematics and how they built those pyramids. They were an incredibly intelligent society. And Moses was trained in those things, and many of those people knew what happened in, in Egypt. It was against conventional science. It was just not logical. If a person stayed there, such a person in unbelief would have died because of the snake bite, but not only because of the snake bite, because they did not believe God. And what was it for them to believe? Lift up your eyes and look at the serpent that Moses lifted up on the pole, and you will be healed. Now, brethren, well, look at, again at verse 8 and 9 in Numbers chapter 21. Notice the tense of the verb switch from future tense to present tense. Look what it says in verse number 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come to pass that everyone who is bitten, when he looks, look, he will live. That's a promise God's given to say, if you look, you'll live, right? Look at then again in verse number 9. And Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on the standard, and it came about that if, any, if a serpent bit any man, when presently looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. When the Israelites were bitten, all they had to do was turn and look at the bronze serpent and they would be healed and live. Now, now, why is it that people hate and despise and reject the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why? Well, it's right here. Right here. Because it's so different. In every single respect, from what we ever expect, it's not what we expect. God apparently does the exact opposite of what we think He should do in any given situation or circumstance, especially the salvation of the soul. And when a person thinks that way, they misunderstand the gospel and they don't look and so therefore they are not saved. They don't, people don't like the way God works. And the reason why is because it it really doesn't conform to their neat little plans and system. Right? Right? Does God do things according to your nice little plans and systems? Our little packages that we want all neat? And... No, he doesn't. He destroys the wisdom of the wise. He does things so incredibly different that when he does them, this is what happens. We begin to think, that can't be the way to be saved. But brethren, this particular method of cure was designed for two reasons. The first reason is to show that 
It was the efficacy of God's power and grace, not the effect of art or nature that brought about the cure. And secondly, that it might be a type of the power of faith in God, the power of faith in Christ to heal all who look to Him because of their sins. So here in Numbers, we have a what the theologians call a type. A type is that which foreshadows or forecasts or represents beforehand something that will happen later. Which, of course, is the anti-type. Types take many different forms, but the object was always to give the picture to the people of what was going to happen. God was preparing these people, the children of Israel, for a tremendous deliverance that was going to provide them, he was going to provide them in the future by those who looked. And when God sent his son into the world, he did the same thing. So as people look at the serpent lifted up on the pole, you get a foreview of what the Lord Jesus Christ would do. That the people were bitten because of their sin, they were complaining and rebellious towards God. This type, the brazen serpent, had no power to heal. But when a person fixed their eyes on the serpent of brass, he was restored to to help. In the same way, the antitype, Christ, who does have the power to give spiritual life to one, to the one who looks, who trusts by faith in him, the one who is lifted up. See, so when you come across a passage of Scripture in the New Testament that it's, is the counterpart to this passage, then you will find the fulfillment of the type, which is the anti-type. This is how Jesus Christ is viewed all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, take your Bibles for a minute and turn to the New Testament because there is a specific passages of Scripture that is directly related to this. Here is Nicodemus, a teacher of Israel, one of the top intelligent men men of the day who was teaching the religious law to the people, and he did not see his condition. He did not see the judgment of God upon his sin. He did not see yet. And so there's the conversation that Nicodemus has with Jesus Christ, right? But notice when the conversation stops. John chapter 3, verse 14. Notice what Jesus says to him. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So whoever believes, whoever looks to Jesus, will in him have eternal life, End of conversation. Nicodemus gets it. He gets it. Why? You know what Nicodemus never did? He never looked to Christ. Now you say, well, salvation at this point sounds quite easy. Yes. Because it's not your work, it's God's work. And when we do it God's way, it is easy for Him. All we have to do is look. So can you honestly say that this Christmas season that you have looked to Jesus? Look to Him alone to have eternal life? Are you still looking to yourself? Are you still looking to someone else? Some other thing? Have you learned the great truth that through Christ 
a thousand times born in Bethlehem during this season. If he is not born in you, you are still perishing. You are still in your sin and you will not see the kingdom of God. I would like to ask you again today, my friends, has this wonderful person been born in your heart? John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot sing the kingdom of God. See, has it happened to you? Christ, who is the king of the kingdom. Christ, who says who will go in and who will not go in. He said it emphatically. You can in no wise enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again, born anew, born from above, born into my family. Unless you look to Jesus, you cannot be saved. Because unless you're looking to Jesus, you're looking somewhere else. You're looking to Egypt. You're looking to yourself. You're looking to someone else. A young man replied after that question was asked, well, I don't know if I have or have not received eternal life. I, didn't, I don't know if I was born again. Another question is asked after he said that reply, have you ever been born physically? And he, of course, replied quickly, I know, of course, I've been born physically. I know that. And then it was told to the young man, my friend, if you had been born again, you would know that as well. If you're born into God's family, you know it. I ask you again on this Sunday before Christmas Day, a day we are celebrating the birth of the Savior, has he been born in your heart? I urge you to humble yourself, to acknowledge your sin and to look at Jesus the Savior and invite Him to come and be born in you and cleanse you and forgive you and transform you. If you don't look to Jesus, you are still lost without Him and without hope, and you will die an eternal death. Now, my friends, when you leave this world and you leap out into eternity which, by the way, is very, very long. Eons and eons of time without end. It's hard to even imagine eternity. Where will you be? With Christ? In heaven? Or consigned forever to the punishment of the lake of fire? Where will you be? Again, in John, it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And that for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved through him. Hebrews tells us this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It was a young man just coming home from reform school or boarding school, as they used to call it in England. And uh, it was January 6th, 1850, a long time ago in England. He decided when he came home he was going to head off to a particular church. He thought about it the, the day before, and he, he head out there. As he was heading out to church, s- snowstorm came up. 
wasn't able to make it to that church, so he went into another church. Uh, in fact, that particular day, the, the preacher didn't even show up. So there was a few people there that made it through the storm into the church, and uh, somebody had to give up, get up and give a message. So one of the men uh, in the congregation uh, got up and began to give a message, and he decided that morning to pick a passage of Scripture in Isaiah. And the passage of Scripture is simply this, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. That day, as the young man sat there, he thought to himself, Boy, that's a simple text. And the man began to say this. He said this, and I quote, Look, Now, looking don't take a deal of pains, does it? It ain't lifting a foot or a finger. Just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year. Boy, that was a long time ago, huh? To be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me, said he in broad exis. That's the type of brogue they had back there in England. Many are on, many on ye are looking to yourselves. But it's no use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by Jesus Christ. Says, look unto me. Some say we must wait for the working of the Spirit. He replied, no, you have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. Look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. And it says, and when he had gone to some length, then he looked at this young lad in the gallery and said to him, complete stranger, Young man, you look miserable. Well, he said, I did. But I I hadn't been accustomed to have remarks made for me from the pulpit on my personal appearance. However, it was a good blow, he said. It struck right home to my heart. Because on that day, he knew this. He was miserable without life. And he had never looked to Christ. Of course, I don't want to play a Paul Harvey here. But the rest of the story is that's Charles Haddon Spurgeon, possibly one of the greatest preachers who ever lived after the Apostle Paul. And he got saved by someone saying to him, look. And Spurgeon said this, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I almost have looked my eyes away. I trusted Christ, and now I'm saved. Brethren, that's faith. We make it such a hard thing. But until we see our condition, 
until we see the judgment of God because of our sin, until we see that we cannot do, we cannot do a thing to save ourselves, and until we look to the remedy that God provided. And what was that? Jesus Christ was lifted up, right? And because he's lifted up, like the serpent on the pole, what do you have to do? Look. Believe by faith, and you will be saved based on the power of God. Amen? That's the gospel, man. That's the reason for this time of year. But honestly, where are you? Young and old, where are you? I pray that today would be the day of your salvation. And so I end with the title of my message. Look and be saved, says the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the word of God. Because I know, Lord, in it is the things that we really need to hear. We're hearing so many things, Lord, but this is your wisdom. This is the mind of God bearing upon the consciences and minds of men and women. Oh, Lord, please do your work in us. If you have saved us already, Lord, let us rejoice in that. Let us grow in that. Let us exalt your name in that. Let us lift up Christ in our life so people can see him, so they can look. And, Lord, if we have not looked yet by faith at our condition, at breaking the law of God, if we have not looked to Christ to save us, please, Lord, today, do that in the heart of your people. Lord, bring them to yourself. Help them to know for sure that they're born into God's family. And, Lord, we'll give you the praise and the glory and honor for all that you'll do, that someday we're going to be in heaven worshiping you, in you, Lord, and, and because we have believed simply the word of God. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.